you for the blessings that you give to us. We have places to live. We have food currently. Uh, even though there may be shortages, I, I don't believe any one of us has been adversely impacted. And we give you thanks for the abundance that you have provided. We are so blessed, so blessed more than anywhere else on the world in, or in the world. And we would pray, Lord, that you would continue that blessing, especially as we get into your word and as we are humbly submitted to you. Pray that you would guide, instruct, and lead in the issues brought up in Titus. And we'll trust you to do that through your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. God has designed three divine institutions. They are the church, the government, and the family. And God has given us instruction on what these institutions are supposed to look like and how they're supposed to operate. And Satan has been on the move attacking all three of these. There are the Christians who are losing their freedoms and even their lives around the world. Our government certainly is under attack. It is the first truly unique country that has not been ruled by a system, uh, ruled by a dictator or the tyranny. The family is under siege with marriage going out of style, the nuclear family being destroyed where you have a father and a mother. They remain married through their whole lives and they have the children. That is the classic definition of a nuclear family. And Paul brings up instruction for at least two of these institutions in Titus. Now, when Titus was sent around to do different ministries in different places, he was dealing with issues of the day inside the church and outside the church and how the church was supposed to respond to that. So that's why it is important for us to pay attention to what's going on here. Now, there were two things for Titus to do uh, when he got to the church there. That there were some things that were lacking or unfinished. He was supposed to take care of those. And also the appointment of elders. So in verse 5... He says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished uh, in the King, New King James Version. It's lacking. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So this idea of lacking or that which is unfinished, it's a medical term and it's applied, <clears throat> excuse me, applied to the setting of a crooked limb. Like a limb is not right. Something has to be straightened and you would obviously look at it and say, well, this has to be corrected. This is not quite right. Uh, it could refer to, and we don't know exactly what he means by this, but it could refer to modifications of behavior of members in the church. Because later on, as we'll see, he talks about older women, younger women, young men, and slaves, and how they're supposed to act inside of the church. It could be clarity on some doctrine because the Judaizers are prevalent there. <clears throat> could be a uh, ministry or administrative details that have to take place, like where are we going to meet? How are we going to congregate? And maybe even there was a necessity for somebody to be established as the senior pastor there, so to speak. And so... It was a difficult task that was before him. It was going to need a lot of prayer, and Paul trusted Titus to do that. And since it was a difficult job, uh, David Guzik, in his commentary, he wrote this. He said, when a job is hard, there are basically two kinds of people. With one, you say, the job is really hard, so we can't send him. And with the other one, you would say, the job is really hard, so we must send him. And Titus seemed to be that of the second kind of individual. And he gives a list, Paul does, for Titus on how he's supposed to select the elders. In verse 6, it says, An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, we went through this list extensively when we were in 1 Timothy chapter 3, so I'm not going to go back over it again. But it's basically a person that everybody recognizes is of good report, that nothing bad really can be said about them, that they're not one who carouses, that gets in fights, that's engaging in behaviors that are unseemly, so to speak, and and just an all-around good guy. And remember, in this particular setting, and even today, it is the men who are supposed to fill this particular position. 
just because they were made for it, more so than the women. The women have their position inside the church as well. <clears throat> and God just said, well, that's who it's supposed to be. Now he goes on to say he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So somebody who would be an elder has to be tested. Now, not just tested, I believe, in a, a book sense where you actually set them down and you say, well, what do you believe? I remember uh, one of the questions uh, that my pastor, el- um, pastor asked me when I became an elder was, so is there anything you disagree with on Calvary Chapel or what we teach here at Calvary Chapel? And I said, well, yes, there's one thing. And he said, well, what is that? I said, it's the teaching of the tithe. And I don't believe that the tithe is New Testament. I believe it is Old Testament. And if you adhere to the tithe in the Old Testament, you better be giving 23 and third percent. That's the way the Old Testament was. Not that I would say, well, it's only 10% you have to give. That's not what it means in the New Testament. New Testament, it's everything belongs to God. And you ask him what he wants you to keep. And that's the way it's supposed to be in the New Testament. Old Testament, I said, I think that that's Old Covenant. The tithe is the Old Covenant because you had the priests, the Levites, that you had to give money to, and they were supposed to save up for the poor as well, the temple tax, and just all of those things. And so you should ask somebody who is going to be an elder what they believe and what they hold to and why they hold to that, and they should be able to explain that and be able to point to different scriptures and say, this is why I hold to that, and properly interpreted. So going on, the job of an elder is to teach and encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who are argumentative. There's always going to be people who are argumentative. And I'm not talking about having a good dissertation, having a, a back and forth, being able to be educated in certain doctrines of the Christian church. But we have to be able to seek out those who oppose what proper doctrine is and be able to say, no, this is wrong and here's why. And this is proper doctrine. That's the job of the elder. And also rebuking those who fail to do good. In verse 10, it talks about false teachers. And we know that they are motivated usually by greed, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So anybody who is in ministry, who is a pastor, who is receiving an income, if you find out that that's their motivation for doing it, they ought to be fired. Uh, You ought to just say, you're done here, you need to move on. If anybody enters ministry in order to get rich, Uh, They are in ministry for the wrong reason. That's not the purpose of being in ministry. And have there been pastors who go into ministry and get rich? Yes, there are, especially televangelists. I think it's Kenneth Copeland who's worth over $400 million. And they have Jets and Creflo Dollar and, you know, everyone else that that is on the televangelist circuit. They they get this money and they live lavish lifestyles and they have houses around the world and private jets. And I don't think that that's what God had in mind uh, for senior pastors of ministries. And so there's false doctrine, insubordination, anything that's unprofitable, uh, like myths that are out there, the elder is supposed to be able to refute and stand up against that using Scripture. <clears throat> now, going on, it says, one of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. He goes on to say, this saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. And so apparently, the uh, Cretans were a surly lot. They, <laughs> the way that they acted, it needed some help. It needed some direction. It needed some instruction. It needed some rebuking even in certain cases. And Paul is telling Titus, this is what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to instruct these men and women that you ought not to act in this particular way and leave instruction for those men and women how to instruct the young men who were there. Now, the character was definitely a problem for the Cretan, uh, and the Cretan was generally deplorable. When it says here in verse 12, Cretans are always liars and evil brutes, 
and lazy gluttons. The term for evil brutes in the original language means a venomous beast. Now, have you ever had a friend that's a venomous beast? Uh, That's the type of person the Cretan was. And so notorious, one commentary says, so so excuse me, so notorious were the Cretans that the Greeks actually formed a verb. It, and I'm going to try to pronounce it here, Cretazin to Cretize, which means to lie and to cheat. That's what they referred to the Cretans as. And they had a proverbial phrase, Cretzein pros Creta, to Cretize against the Cretan, which means to match lies with lies. So that's what they were known for. They were known as liars, and their behavior was always suspect. And there, were, there was definitely a lot of um, evil um, crimes that were taking place. They were liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. In other words, they were just more concerned about themselves than anyone else around them. And, and so I, I wanted to do some investigation. Well, what, what is the crime? What is the life like in Crete today? And I looked up some stats on that, and they had thefts and muggings and attacks and vandalism, and all either were low or very low, which is a good sign. But one crime that was the highest, or two crimes that were the highest, were corruption and bribery. And those are sins of the speech. You know, you're whispering in secret. You're trying to make deals behind closed doors. And you're trying to bribe somebody. And so this was a common problem, as we'll see later. The women had a difficult time with their speech and what they would say and the content of it. But the character of the Christians in Crete needed some adjustment. And so Paul is graciously trying to instruct Titus, this is what you need to instruct the Cretans on how they're to conduct their lives. And for us, and even for them, a good name is better than any type of wealth that you can accumulate. In Proverbs 22, 1, it says, a good name is more desirable than great riches, to be esteemed better than silver or gold. And Ecclesiastes 7, 1 says, a good name is better than fine perfume. So your name is really all you have. You can have all kinds of riches and you can be a despot having all kinds of riches. For instance, some of the richest people in the world, like Putin, what do you think of him? Do you think he has a good name amongst all of his people and around the world? I think he was the one that invaded Georgia and Crimea down there. He was giving direction on that and everybody who opposes him, guess what? They end up dead. Uh, and that's not so good. So I don't think he has such a good name, but he is probably the wealthiest man in the world. And people really don't know that, but he is more wealthy than Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. He, he just has incredible wealth that is there. Now, if you go on with this, uh, so how do you win a good name? How do you cultivate a good name? Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3 says, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. So these two things, love and faithfulness, are the key to getting a good name. If you want a good name, you have to express love, act out things that are expressing love to others, and you have to be faithful. For instance, faithfulness, a husband or a wife who is faithful in their marriage for their whole lives, people would look at that marriage and say, wow, they were faithful. That was good. They did a good job. Or the parents who are faithful to raise their children properly. Ever hear of someone that uh, they are a terrible parent? (laughs) This last week I heard someone uh, secondhand that admitted they were a terrible parent. We don't want to be terrible parents because if you are a terrible parent, what are you usually going to produce? terrible kids have you ever seen kids that have just been out of control i used to be a waiter that was one of the first jobs i had and there would be parents that would bring their kids into the restaurant and this one particular kid it was the child of the owner the owner came in to eat he had several of these restaurants 
And the child was just incorrigible. The, the, the child would slack out of the chair, would run around the table, could not be controlled. And I'm, all of us, young men and women who are waiters, are just going, that kid needs a good spanking and what that kid needs. And, of course, that would be biblical. I don't mean to uh, tell you just to beat your kids for no reason. But that kid was clearly out of control, had no discipline whatsoever. And that can happen if we're not being faithful or good parents. Or the employee who is a good steward over the position and an asset to the boss. Now, remember somebody from Scripture that was a really good employee? His name was Joseph. Remember Potiphar? He put him in charge of everything. He didn't have to worry about one single thing. Of course, his wife wanted to sleep with him, Potiphar's wife. And he said no, and he wouldn't even do that. And then when he got into prison, he basically ran the prison because he was such a model prisoner that was in there. So if you think you're working and you're a prisoner in your job, you need to be a model prisoner in that employment <clears throat> and if everybody else is complaining you're not supposed to complain remember philippians chapter 2 verse 14 do everything without complaining or arguing you just follow through you you be an example of what it is as someone who has a good name somebody who is faithful even in the face of adversity and then there's the person who loves a person who is constantly placing others before themselves without complaining, an individual who sacrifices a great deal for others, never expecting anything in return. Of course, we know Scripture talks about the greatest act of love that is listed for us in the Bible. In John chapter 15, verse 13, you probably all have it memorized. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus not only did that, but he laid down his life for his enemies as well and would you lay down your life for your enemy there are those who gave the ultimate sacrifice acting in love uh, are you guys familiar with the four chaplains four chaplains the first time i came in contact with this was up in santa maria california in this particular story i was accompanying uh, my daughter stephanie they had an academic and musical competition for the Christian school that they were attending and all of these different Christian schools would meet up at this one church up in Santa Maria and we'd all go up there and and uh, we'd spend the night on the church floor and uh, the kids would be in the basement and they'd separate the girls and the boys and for about three days in a row we'd go for these academic and musical uh, achievement presentations and they would be rewarded for that and there would be chorus uh, they would have like a girls chorus from a school or a mixed chorus they would have uh, these kids and this was the primary schools they would have these kids go up and play the piano and just phenomenal kids up there and then they'd have the academics and they would take these tests and they would be rewarded for their achievements in academics and it, it was just wonderful in this one particular school they had a, a large band almost an orchestra is what it was and the conductor of the band that was from this christian school got up there and he told them what they were going to play and or what they were going to perform and it was a story about these four chaplains and i listened to the music and he t he explained the story which i will explain to you in a moment he explained the story of the four chaplains and i was moved by the way that they played the song and the way that they it flowed in the crescendo of the song and the aftermath i was just like wow once he told the story i understood the song and the song was very moving well the four chaplains december 1943 were aboard the dorchester ship it was a civilian ship that had been uh, fitted to carry troops it says on the night of february 3rd 1943 the ship the dorchester was struck by a torpedo fired from a german submarine as it made its way to greenland the torpedo struck the engine room which ended all electrical power to the ship that was doomed to sink just minutes later Aboard the ship were four chaplains, George Fox, Alexander Good, Clark Poling, and John Washington. And these men collectively were army chaplains who had attended 
school at Harvard University. Fox was a Methodist minister. Good was a rabbi with a PhD. Washington was a Catholic priest. And Clark, a reverend of the Reformed Church of America. Many of the men that were stuck below decks, they rushed to the top side of the ship and began, that began to list to the starboard side. Unfortunately, only two of the 11 lifeboats were able to be used to save the men's lives because the rest went down with the ship. The four chaplains, they quickly moved among the bewildered men, calming them, directing them to life rafts, urging them to escape the doomed ship. Many had forgotten their life jackets. The chaplains located a supply in a deck locker and passed them out. When the bin was empty, they pulled off their own and made others put them on. They all gave up their life jackets and refused to abandon ship. They tended to the men who had been wounded by the explosion caused by the torpedo. For those unable to get off the boat and to safety, they offered spiritual counseling. Finally, as the Dorchester started to vanish under the waves, survivors spoke of seeing the four men linked arm in arm, praying aloud as they disappeared from sight. That's what those four ministers did. They paid the ultimate sacrifice. They tried to give instruction to those who were going to lose their lives, and they tried to rescue as many as they could. Now, that, that's an inspiring story. And when you put that with the, the song that was played, it can move you to tears to listen to something like that. And that's what God wants us to be like, is one who is faithful and does acts of love. We probably never will have to give our physical lives for somebody, but we can certainly give of our time and our resources to individuals, and we might think it's an inconvenience to do so when called upon. Especially, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's easy for us to do that during those times of the year. But oftentimes there are times of the year where that's very inconvenient to be called out and and be asked to help or assist in some way. Well, why should I take my time to do that? Doesn't everybody know that I'm very busy? And God doesn't want us to do that. So I digress here. Verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. The saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the truth. So it appears that the Cretans were beginning to listen to the teaching of the Judaizers who were there. Now, I've covered the Judaizers pretty much in depth, but they were promoting the keeping of the Old Testament ceremonial laws and following special diets and observing special days and celebrating the feasts, but they also would promote observing special human commands that they thought led to holiness. We know from the book of Colossians that we think that a harsh treatment of the body, or at least they did back then, the harsh treatment of the body made somebody more holy, and it doesn't. Or if, if you think you're going to starve yourself and it makes you more holy because you're fasting, it, it doesn't make you more holy. It doesn't make you more holy to go to church more often. It doesn't make you ho- more holy to study more often. Holiness is imputed to us by God himself. We are simply asked to be obedient to him. And that's what makes us holy. Placing our trust in him, he imputes to us his holiness. So referring to these Judaizers, again, he continues, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. So he's referring to this group of people. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God. But by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So he calls out people in the church that are causing this disruption through what they're teaching and calls them, you're detestable. Now, you want to think that Paul was always nice in what he said. Remember the chief priests? He said, whitewashed sepulcher. He called them an open grave. Nothing is inside but death. And, and of course, it, it goes on in the book of Acts when he does this. Uh, he got struck on the face. And the person that struck him said, don't you know that you are talking to the high priest? And he goes, forgive me. I didn't know he was a high priest. I've, I've talked about this before. Do you think Paul didn't know who the high priest was? 
I know he knew who the high priest was. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He knew who the high priest was. No, forgive me. I didn't know who the high priest was. The man was full of sarcasm. Imagine this little guy, probably bold legs, an eye problem, balding on top, just a short guy, going, you whitewashed sepulcher. I could just see him doing that. And I'd be rooting for him. I love somebody who fights for righteousness. I love somebody who stands up in the face of what's wrong. I, I just saw this video. In Cambodia, in India, there's a lot of motos, little motorcycles that they ride around. And it's a real common occurrence to see two guys on a moto with helmets, and they're just looking for somebody to prey upon. And there was this one little video. A woman was standing on a sidewalk, and a bus leaves where she is standing, and she's there with her phone. And there's this one guy that comes into view on the security camera, and he veers towards her, and she's not paying attention, and he just grabs her cell phone, and he takes off. Coming this way is a car that sees the whole thing. He slams his car into the moto. The guy falls over. Lucky he didn't break a leg. I saw another one where a guy broke a leg and they did that. But this particular guy, he gets up and he starts running to get away. All of a sudden, you see four to six men converge on this guy. And they just beat the stuffing out of this guy. And the guy is trying to just save his life. Now, again, you know my personality. I was just going... Yeah, but on the other hand, I'm going, this guy is a sinner and he needs salvation that he'd want to steal from somebody. But this, because Christ lives in me and lives in you, I have this song, strong sense of justice. I, I want to see justice carried out in our legal system today. Kyle Rittenhouse, justice was done. And there's people who hate that justice was done because they have ulterior motives. And, and so there are people that were detestable inside the church back then. They were disobedient. They were unfit for doing anything good. And it, Paul can call out these people, but it is God who is going to repay. Vengeance is not ours. The Lord says he will repay. And, and so we're supposed to leave that to him, but we should maintain this idea of justice and biblical justice, not justice based on what we believe. Now, going on in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. What we believe determines how we act. If we believe that there are no consequences after this life, we can act however we want. And that's oftentimes what despots do. They don't have any belief in the afterlife. They don't have any belief in God. If you take Lenin and Mao and Hitler and all those people that just killed millions of people, they didn't think there would be any consequences whatsoever. You can Fidel Castro, all of those people. There's no consequences after life. They are atheists, Marx, all, all of those individuals. But we know that there are consequences, and we believe that God will judge all of us, according to the book of Revelation and also Second Corinthians chapter 5. We are all going to have to give an account, and that keeps us from doing wrong. If we want to do something wrong and we think we're going to get caught, chances are you're not going to do that thing which is wrong. Or if you want to do something wrong, you want it to be hidden. You don't want anybody to know about it. You want to disguise who you are. And, and God, he will reveal all of that. And I think we will all be witnesses to that. And I think we will all suffer shame at that point. I think that there are things that each one of us has done that has been shameful, but we know that there is a judge and there is a God who is merciful and he forgives us for those things. But the people without God, they don't understand that. They don't give it a second thought in doing something that is wrong. And so with the people there in Crete, he starts to address their behaviors, what they're doing. And he starts with the older men says, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. And so these men, they were taught to be mild, calm, 
controlled, reasonable. They were just the opposite. They were self-indulgent, uncontrolled, extreme, unreasonable, wild, hot-headed, and they did not act in a way that deserved respect. Now, that was a characteristic of the people in Crete, the men specifically. This is how they acted all the time. And even today with the corruption and bribery, the men needed to learn to act properly. Now, we need to teach that to our sons, and I'll get to that in a moment. But if we don't do that by example, the older men were the ones that set the course of events. They were the ones who were in control. Us, those who are in here, the men, the older men, we are the ones that set the pace for all of our family members and friends that know us who are younger. And so these men who were self-indulgent and uncontrolled, they were supposed to be taught also to be sound in the faith because they were not sound in the faith. They did not believe in the practice of sound doctrine or they started to listen to the Judaizers. And so they were just kind of messed up like everyone in the world is kind of messed up. They didn't do, follow through with proper behavior, what is good, right, and just. And by the way, if you go over to the Middle East or you know somebody who is involved in Islam, it's perfectly okay to lie as a Muslim if it results in the promotion of Islam. Uh, you can do that. I've, you've heard me say before that uh, the Quran teaches that you, if your wife is disobedient that you can beat her. And, and if you're part of the political Islam, you can kill an infidel. That's why they lop off people's heads over there. All of these things are the antithesis of what God would promote in his Bible, both Old and New Testament. There is a worldview that is out there even in China, communist China. They enslave millions of people. I think I told you the number last week, 18 million people are enslaved. To hear that would be something that is not only rude, it is immoral, it is unethical to enslave somebody else. But over there, they think it's totally okay to dominate. See, these different worldviews are there, and there is a clash of worldviews even right now. <laughs> the Christian worldview, the Judeo-Christian worldview is under attack. And there is a desire to take the United States in such a direction where uh, tyranny is the rule. China is paying people in the universities, people in corporate America, people in the government to buy into their worldview. They're actually funding them to the tunes of millions of dollars. And so we want to make sure that inside the church, we teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of self-respect or self uh, were their respect, self-controlled and sound in the faith, in love and endurance. That's why uh, the men need to be studying doctrine. Uh, now, sound doctrine would be the sinful state of man. Uh, we are all sinful, or also the ultimate judgment for sin that is going to take place. Or those who love and follow Jesus should keep his commands, or consider others better than self, or enduring hardship rather than abandoning the practice of their faith. All of these things are sound doctrine. Now, there are certain doctrines that we hold to in the Christian faith. Uh, I have reviewed before with you the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his ultimate return, his second advent. All of those are established in Scripture. It's what we need to hold to, be able to discuss with somebody. These are the things that we believe. And so the men in Crete needed some help in their beliefs and practices, and so did the older women. So the men had their own set of problems and they're different than the set of problems for the most part than the women the men and the women believe it or not were different now i know the media would try to change that it's something else you know the women in media or specifically in movies they are the breadwinners well, bread they are the superheroes they are the ones that i mean look at wonder woman you know, she saves the world out there. And, and there are these superheroes that are coming up that are the women. Uh, what is it? The Marvel one. Um, Captain Marvel is a woman. And in the comic book, she was a man. And they're changing all of this to where the woman is the dominant strength, the force behind the universe and everything that exists, including the family. And women have their place just like men have their place. Men have their problems just like women have their problems. And so it goes on to say, what the women and their problems are. It says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live. 
what can you glean from that first statement? They're not reverent in the way that they live and not to be slanderers. So it seems to be true that the feeling of men is anger and lust and bringing those things under control and not lying. They, they need to be circumspect in their behavior. But the feeling of women would then be their tongue. Throughout history, there have been several things written about women and their ability to speak. And all you have to do is a precursory search on the Internet to see what used to be talked about concerning women and what they believe and what they hold to. Uh, For instance, a whistling woman and a crowing hen are neither fit for God nor men. These little sayings that are out there. Um, there's others. And I, I was just checking through all the different cultures through different times in history, whether it's uh, the Turks or the Chinese or the Spaniards. They each had something to say about women and their speech. Now, remember, keep in mind, I'm not just focusing on women. I focus on the men. The men have their problems, and they need to be taught. Well, the women have their problems, too. The Chinese have a favorite saying, Uh, to the effect that a woman's tongue is her sword and she does not let it rust. And then there is a dictum which uh, has its equivalent in Spain. It says, smoke, a dripping roof, and a scolding wife are enough to drive a man out of his life. Uh, An amusing couplet which is proverbial in the neighborhood of Salisbury, England. It speaks of a woman's tongue. It says, nature, regardless of the babbling race, planted no beard upon a woman's face. Not Freddie Keene's razors, though the very best, could shave a chin that never is at rest. You know, and, and, and so this is across all cultures. Now, the same thing with the men. Across all cultures, you have these men that have the same. It, it's like a pandemic for the men. They have the same problems. Well, the women across all cultures, they have the same problems as well. So what would have applied to the Cretans back then would apply to us as well today, both men and women. He goes on to say some of the problems that the women had. Or addicted to much wine, but teach what is good. Again, you can infer from this that, well, they were probably addicted to much wine. And they did not teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Well, so women had a tendency to enjoy enjoy a little bit too much wine. Uh, Teachers of what is good, what specifically were they teaching that was not good? I'm just going to defer to this. As a man, I think I might be unqualified. Uh, to elaborate on such a subject and for the sake of my own skin I'm going to avoid speculation of what it is that they were teaching that was not so good Uh, I'm sure women would be much more adept at explaining that the older women would understand what works in marriage and what is best in teaching new mothers how to raise their kids because women who have stuck with it they begin to know and understand men men Probably will never understand women fully, but women will understand men. Men are simple. There's certain things that women can do that will keep a man happy and content. You know, the the proverb, a way to a man's heart is what? It's through his stomach. You, You keep him fed, and hey, that's half the problem. Get him his rest, make sure he's fed, and a few other things, and life's going to be good. And that's easy you know, for, the, for the woman. For the man, on the other hand, I think it might be a little more difficult, and he has to learn patience in marriage. But the older women, they understand how marriage works. And when younger women get into trouble, you know, there's always the fatherly advice. I have three daughters and two granddaughters, and... Uh, sometimes they want the advice and sometimes they don't I've had both cases where uh, my daughters will come to me and they'll ask me for a particular advice or I'll give it to them I even did premarital counseling with one of my daughters and I I would tell them not be expecting this this is what you're supposed to do and then I had a granddaughter and and there were some problems going on and I I said if you want some advice I'll give you some advice if you don't want it you don't have to have it and she said I don't want it 
Okay, you don't have to have it. You know, you offer these things, but you don't have to spill the beans, so to speak. And, and so these older women and fathers, they kind of understand what's going on as well, and they can give insight. But specifically, the Bible says the older women are to teach the younger women how to do what? Love their husbands. Why? Because husbands are difficult to love. Let's face it, women are difficult to love sometimes too, but husbands can be difficult to love. And how to raise their children. Uh, you know, the, the women who have had multiple children, they got it down. They know how to do it. And the women who are skilled, especially in the Bible, and they understand what the Bible has to say, and they follow the teaching there, and they're able to instruct the younger women. The younger women, they get these newfangled ideas in their head of how to... Uh, take care of their children and usually the older women are able to say nah that's not going to work this is what you need to do and and so that's why the younger women need to seek out the advice of the older women the ones who are experienced so here it says be busy at home kind and subject to their husbands now all of these things are in the antithesis of the feminist movement today busy at home are you kidding me uh, for a woman today, what if as she's going through high school and you say, are you prepared to be busy at home? Would you offend some of the young women that are there? You know, there's more women in college today than there are men. It's because the men have been terrorized with toxic masculinity and they're kind of not understanding, well, how should they treat the women and the rape culture that is out there? And, and so the men are kind of confused and the men just go, forget it. I'm not doing any of this. And they take off and they're not going to the university where the university promotes the feminist ideal and the uh, toxic masculinity. It is frowned upon and you're not supposed to be so masculine. You need to be a little more feminine. And so to say to a young woman, well, be prepared to be busy at home and raise those kids and ask the older women how to do that, that would be an affront to the modern-day feminist. Uh, there's no better person, I believe than a woman to organize a home. Uh, my neighbor, I happened to be in my vehicle yesterday, and I'm moving my vehicle, and I drive by my neighbor's house. <clears throat> and the wife and the husband were out. And the wife is doing this. And I'm watching the husband. The husband's behind her going, And you can tell she's pointing out things on the outside of the house that she is concerned with or wants some changes done, and, and it's her house. And he's going, you know, okay, I'll, I'll handle all that. And I just, I, it was kind of comical to watch it. I stopped for a minute. I was just watching it. You know, and I, I kind of chuckled a little bit. <clears throat> and then there's our house. Right now, I have a project going on at our house. There is a hole so deep where my driveway was that I could put bodies there and they would never be discovered. Of course, I'd never want to do that. Well, maybe some, but it could be covered. I can stand in it and one of the neighbors said, what's he doing in there? I can only see the top of his head, you know? And it's all tore. And then the backyard, it, it's all tore up as well. There's two stumps that were removed and there's a hole there. And it, it's just a mess. And then in the garage and, it, you know, we're getting some work done in there. And it's like, it's a mess. And Patty comes to me and says, Thanksgiving. The whole family's coming over for Thanksgiving. Some kid could fall in there and break his leg, you know, and I said, don't worry, it's going to be just fine. And well, and she wants the house presentable and acceptable for the grandkids that are going to come over. Because are you kidding me? The grandkids are going to look at that and they go, I want to go in that trench. I want to play out in that dirt. And it's just, and she wants serenity. She wants calmness. And I go, don't worry, I'll handle it. Lord willing, it'll take place. But I think there's no one better than a woman to make sure a house 
is stable and fit for habitation and, and clean because she feels it on the inside. The way that it looks, she feels it represents her. It's her home and the way it runs. And that's just how she is built. And I think that that is a good thing. The guy on the other hand, he's thinking about work. I went to bed last night going, I got a ditch. I got drywall. I got a stump. And that's what I'm thinking about, you know, and those things have to uh, get taken care of. But the woman, and that's why God says the woman should be busy at home. Why? Because she's better at it. She's better than the man at making sure the house is a home. Also, to be kind. Apparently, the women in Crete weren't very kind. Uh, well, you know, kind, not only is it true about men, uh, you know, all the things that are wrong with them, but they make movies about how women are unkind and ruthless. How about The Devil Wears Prada or Cinderella, the stepmother? Now, I never saw this other movie, but I read a little synopsis on it, Mean Girls. I haven't seen it, but I can just imagine what that's all about. And after having three girls go through school and two granddaughters, uh, one currently in school, they, little girls, women, young women, can be absolutely ruthless and evil, breathing sulfurous breath with talons. I, I mean, that's the way they can be. Now, they can just be as sweet as pie. They can be. But the venom that can come out of their mouth is just incredible. And, and so you have to be prepared for that. And the older women need to teach the younger women that they need to be kind, busy at home. And then the final thing that will cause somebody's hair to catch on fire, if they're a feminist, is be subject to their husbands. We are equal in the eyes of God. But we just have different jobs, even at our jobs. The manager is equal to the employee as far as his humanity is concerned. They just have different responsibilities. And we're supposed to recognize that. The men and women have different responsibilities. And so if the woman is busy at home, kind, and being subject to her husband, uh, that will lead to the husband being respected. And the man who is respected will have a wife that he will do anything for. And a submissive wife leads to a good marriage, which leads to stable children, which leads to a stable society. That's the nuclear family. That's the way God set it up. But if you destroy the family, if you take away the institution of marriage, which they have successfully done uh, in the United States here, if you also take away the authority of the parent and you transfer it to the state, which they have done, they have written laws in the state of California that a child can go change their sex and they're not even going to tell the parent. You know, those types of things. They can have them go get abortion without telling the parent. When I sent my daughter off to university, we could not know her status at the university. Then we had to sign a document, otherwise she couldn't go to the university. That all of that was her information. Even though we're paying for most of it, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You are no longer an authority. And so the state is trying to take away the authority of the household, the man who leads the household, the one responsible, the woman who is respecting of the husband, who is submissive to him, and the children who are respecting both, that is what leads to a good society, and that's what God intended. But sadly, that is not where we are today. And it goes on to say, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled, and everything set them an example by doing what is good. So what are the men not? They're not self-controlled. <clears throat> my grandson, two years old, he's getting to that stage. You know, they call the terrible twos. Well, he's not terrible, but he's very active, extremely active. Have you ever seen the little, my, my grandson did this the other day. He's standing up, he's looking at us, he's laughing, and he raises both feet up and falls on his rear end. They just, and he's laughing, doing it. And he looks at us and we, ha, 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 well, he does it like 10 times. You know, he's going up and down and he's just kind of running through the house and being silly. A little boy, you know, foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, but the run of correction will drive it far from him. I didn't spank him, nobody spanked him, we were just letting him be a kid. But he's wild. Why do you think they have the, quote, X games? extreme games and who are mostly the participants in the extreme games not all of them but mostly 
It's the young, stupid men that try things and get their body hurt. I mean, I have seen, my grandson is involved in the X Games. He's been to the X Games. Participated in the X Games. I've seen these huge skateboard ramps, massive skateboard ramps, like 30, 40 feet in the air. And these people launch off of these things and cover this great divide. And most of them make it over the top and some of them don't. They slam right into the face of the other side of the ramp. And that's extreme. And I even saw a guy do it in a wheelchair. And he did a backflip in the wheelchair while doing it and he landed successfully. I don't know how many times he didn't land successfully, but that's extreme. My own son fell 3,000 feet off the site. I think it was Mount McKinley. Slid all the way down. And he thought he was going to die. And he didn't. He made it. Now he's surfing with the sharks down in Costa Rica or someplace. These extreme things that these kids do. But you know, a lot gets accomplished by taking risks. But you want to take a controlled risk, not an out-of-control risk. So that's why Paul even says here, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. I mean, use a little wisdom here. And they're going to take the example from the older men. Young men have a tendency to be out of control. Young men watch the older men. Young men will pick up the habits and inclinations of their fathers and the older men. I can testify to this as I was growing up. I worked for some older men and some of their habits that they were carrying out. I picked them up. The same phrases that they would say. I picked those phrases up. I thought it was cool because I thought it was older. You know, if I acted that way, and all young men will do this. Now, speaking in general terms, if a father is patient and kind, the son will be patient and kind. If the father is a brawler, angry, disgruntled, the son most likely will follow suit. And that's advice for young women. <clears throat> if a young woman has a, uh, a beau, a boyfriend that is stupid, if he is pilfering things if he's acting in a way that is unseemly if he's angry if he's violent i always ask a premarital counseling couple i ask the guy have you ever put your fist through a wall or hit a locker or broke your hand or anything like that you'd be surprised how many young men that want to get married have said yes they have and i i told them that's got to stop forever you can't do that you have to be self-controlled and I ask him also, have you guys ever been in a fight? And if they haven't been in a fight, I say, go away until you have a fight. And come. No, I don't say that. I, I, I simply say, well, how did you handle the fight? How did you handle the disagreement? What did you go through? And how did you resolve that? And it's always interesting to hear how that takes place. And there's sometimes in premarital and postmarital counseling where I have to say, stop, because they're arguing with each other. I actually said just like that once. I go, stop, you guy. And I had to tell him to stop. It's like, you know, we are sinners and we're put together and this is going to be a problem. So these young men especially, it begins with them. It begins with the older men teaching the younger men and the older women teaching the younger women. But the younger men need to be influenced. And the older men, maybe you've heard this. I heard this going up. Do as I say, not as I do. Good luck with that one. Uh, If the young men are shown a good example, they become a might of the nation. It is the young men who fight wars. It is the young men who sacrifice themselves for the greater good. It is the young men who become strong law enforcers. It is the young men who perform the back-breaking labor. It is the young men who become the heroes, just like the four chaplains that were up there giving their lives. And likewise, if a bad example is set, let me give you these statistics. 77% of homicide homicide victims are men. Men are 3.5 times or 3.5 times more likely than women to die by suicide. Well over 90% of casualties in war are men. 93% of people in federal prison are men. 60% of people dying from drug overdoses are men. They had bad examples to follow. Uh, We want to make sure, since there is a war on masculinity known as toxic masculinity this needs to be resisted at every single attempt for young men we need to promote strength competitiveness self-control winning honor achievement and how to evaluate risk and reward all of those things we need to teach young men we need to let the young men take some risks go out there and explore and do things but use wisdom And these things are the things that make men. And this is what King David 
told his son Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, when David's time to die was near, he told his son Solomon, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, show yourself to be a man. He goes on to say, do what the Lord your God tells you, walk in his ways, keep all his laws and his word by what is written in the law of Moses, then you will do well in all that you do and in every place you go. So King David told his son to be a man. And we need to tell our young sons, be men. Don't be a milk toast out there. So there is an attack. The things that we've seen here, an attack on marriage, gender, and race, for men to be men, women to be women, that's what we're experiencing today. And there's an attempt to dissolve the differences between men and women in certain circumstances and to remove the recognition of the different races, which I'll get into in a moment. And bear in mind that the Marxists of today are attempting to create a race war, like the Kyle Rittenhouse thing. You know, he shot three white guys. But they're saying the reason he did that was because of racism. And it's like, well, I'm going to digress here. First, there's a um, move in media to portray men as more feminine, to do jobs that have been traditionally been reserved for women, like in commercials. I watch these commercials. I, I examine the commercials now. Men doing laundry, cleaning the house, feeding the children, doing the shopping. The wife comes home professionally dressed, enters the house after a long day at the office, has her keys in her hands and just breathes a sigh of relief because the husband took care of the household. Now, if you go back to the 60s and you saw a commercial on television that did that, people would be up in arms like, what is this heresy which is out there? Not that men can't do those things. Men can do those things. But even in scripture, it says... The wife is the one that's supposed to take care of the household. Why? Because she's fit for that. She's built for that. Guys, on the other hand, a joke between my wife and I, if if she goes away, uh, the question is, did I take a shower before I went to bed or did I not? Or how long would the sheets go without being changed? You know, that type of thing. If I was going to be a bachelor. And that's the way bachelors are, you know, but I'm not a bachelor. So I shower every day, sometimes twice a day. And I'm, I'm clean all the, that's, that's just how the differences between men and women are. And so there is this attempt to blur the genders and their roles, their traditional roles. And God has it down and he tells us how we're supposed to do that. And with these roles, there are gender pronouns. I, I started looking up the gender programs, pro, pronouns. Z, Zim, Zir, Zis, Z self, herself, H I R S E L F, herself, verself, terself, M self. There's men and there's women. There's hers and there's hims. There's she and a he. That's the way God designed it. But the world says, no, we want to dissolve that. God wants all the genders to remain intact. Satan does not. Wants to blur all that. One final thing on this. You know, the commercials, most of the commercials have mixed-race couples, which is fine. You can be a mixed-race couple. I think that's fine. The, the big thing for me, better be a believer. That's the big thing for me. But it, it's subtle, but if you follow the line of reasoning, if mixed-race couples always marry, you'll eventually have a monochrome people. Think about it. If you have a, a black person, a white person to become like a mulatto. If you have an Asian mixed in with that, or you have an American Indian mixed in with that, they all become one people, one person all the way across the board. God loves the distinctions. He loves the nations. In the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side was a river stood the tree of life bear, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. That word for na- nations is ethnos or ethnic or race. God loves the races. Satan wants to get rid of the races. I'm not saying that you can't have an interracial marriage. God bless them. I know people that are married. Wonderful marriages. It's great. But it's the idea they want to, Satan wants to remove masculinity wants femininity to rise right now so they're both equal he, he wants this idea of moving out the genders there's no genders there's no marriage there it takes a village all of that is what is under attack so for us 
We just simply need to read and understand God's instruction concerning genders, marriage, and family, the unit, and, and includes children. Satan is attempting to destroy all three of those institutions, and he's doing it through government, media, academia, corporate organizations, and on and on and on. God has given us direction what we're supposed to be as a people, even as a country, or as the world. He has set it up for us, strict guidelines. And remember, don't take this the wrong way. I believe that, generally speaking, men have their task. Women have their task. The races have their task. That's fine. They can intermingle. That's fine. It's just Satan's attempt to take all of that away. And he wants his own kingdom, his own way set up, and he wants tyranny installed. And that's where we're headed. So for us as a people, as believers, we need to stand up and say, no, this is wrong. This is not the direction to head. Don't go down this road because it will lead to nothing but trouble. Look what it's done to the young men and for the young women as well. They're losing their identity. They're losing their femininity. And we want to make sure we maintain what God has given to us. And may God bless our efforts in this. Let's pray. Father, we, we know that the world has its own view of how things should be. And you have yours. Help us, Lord, not to be contentious. But help us to promote what is right and good and just and fair. And when it comes to genders, help us always stand on the side of male and female. And how you love every single person, no matter what race they belong to. You've created that, Lord. You are the one that has set up the different races and the nations which they occupy. And we bless you for it, for you are a God of variety. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to stand up for your truth, for your ways, for your precepts. In Jesus' name, Lord willing, we'll do so. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Please stand.